are you out there? Amen. Let's get our Bibles out tonight. Who knows what book we're in? Oh, thank God. It was close. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Working our way through it tonight. I want you to turn there. Uh, we're going to get through verse 14 tonight by the grace of God, starting in verse 11, where we left off last time. I'm going to read you verses 1 through 14. Let's thank God for the word and jump in. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you tonight for the book of Ephesians, for the apostle Paul, for the instruction to the early church that is so poignant for us to receive instruction and encouragement, to understand the doctrines of the New Testament, to understand the mission of the church, to understand what we have in Christ. Father, thank you for Ephesians, Lord. And as we study it, Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds that we could drink it in like a sponge tonight and that it would stay with us for eternity. Father, tuck some things in our hearts tonight that will stay with us forever. We can pray that because your word is eternal. And we are eternal. And we are in Christ. And so eternity is within us. So plant something in us that will last forever tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. And the church said... Amen. Well, here we are, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Listen to verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth. Listen to verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, there is a lot of, lot of stuff in there, amen? That, that is just loaded. We've covered, it's taken us three or four weeks just to get to verse 11. Here we are in verse 11. Let's, let's check out what he's saying here. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. Say inheritance. Say inheritance like you just inherited one. Yeah, it's a good thing. If you get a phone call from a lawyer and your great uncle so-and-so that you never met died and left all of his estate to you. And he didn't owe money. He actually had millions. 
Oh, now I got your attention. Now you stop looking at your phones. All right. Yeah, an inheritance is an exciting thing, amen, Uh, to receive an inheritance. And when we hear about this inheritance, you know, and we look at it here, uh, it's just exciting. It's powerful. As I was studying this and immersing myself in it this week, you know, I found myself getting my eyes off of the things of the world and the strains and the struggles and the bills and the finances and realizing all of this doesn't matter because I have an inheritance in Christ that's eternal and it's waiting for me. Amen. When Jesus said, I'm going to build mansions, he's going to prepare a place for us. Amen. In the Father's house, there's a place for each of us. There's a space for each of us. And there's an inheritance for each of us. Now, in looking in chapter one so far, we identified that there's five in hymns here that show us the redemptive benefits of being in Christ. This concept of being in Christ or being in him Uh, connects us to Jesus through relationship, and in him we have some redemptive benefits. We talked about personal holiness and positional holiness. We defined the biblical concept of predestination. We talked about dispensationalism, and we discussed Calvinism and Arminianism. So we've covered a lot so far, and we only got up to verse 11. I hope you're having fun. But there's so much more. Now we pick up today in 11 with the two last in hymns we're going to cover tonight. This idea of a spiritual inheritance for those who are in Christ is well documented throughout the New Testament. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. This isn't the first time we hear about it or the only time it happens in Scripture. No, this idea of a spiritual inheritance for those who are in Jesus is well documented, mostly by Paul, uh, but also by Peter and Luke. We find this concept and this promise of an inheritance mentioned two times in the book of Acts, Uh, Galatians and Colossians also two times, as well as Hebrews two times. Now, four times in the book of Ephesians that we're talking about. So it's most prominent here in Ephesians, a book of Paul's writing. And one time we see it in 1 Peter. So there again, within the New Testament and those books that are there, there's a lot of documentation about the inheritance we're about to receive in Christ. Now, I want to cover a couple scriptures that cover it just so you can get some insight into what we're talking about here. Colossians 3, 24. Knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now understand, our inheritance will be received from Jesus to us as a reward. Does does that sound like a good thing? I don't know about you, but I am so grateful to Jesus for what he's done in my life. I'm not looking at any, for any rewards from him, amen. I'm just glad that I'm, I, you know, I'm going to the non-smoking section of eternity. Anybody? Come on. But Jesus loves us, and he sees our works, and he sees what we do and our sacrifices, and he loves us so much, he wants to reward us. You know, those of you who have children, you know, at this Christmas time, the, as we get older, the most excitement is getting gifts for our children and for others and seeing them so excited about, you know, what they're opening up. And that's the Father's heart towards us. He loves us. He wants to bless us. He wants to reward us. And in eternity, he's going to have some gifts for us. And he's excited about us receiving them from him. Think about that for just a a second. Why would Jesus reward us? Well, this inheritance is a reward for our works, for our suffering, for us laying down our lives and giving up this life for eternity. It's for denying ourselves and not denying him before the world. 
All those things I just mentioned are what generates rewards for us. Every time we stand up for Christ against the flow of the world, every time we lay our life down, every time we refuse sin because we love him so much, we don't want to offend him, we want to be holy, and we want to be pleasing to him. Come on, there's a reward for all that. And it's important that we know it. Why? Because sometimes we think, well, what does it matter? What does it matter if I do this or I do that or if I serve or if I don't serve? It matters. God is watching, and he wants to reward us for all of these things. We're going to receive an inheritance as a reward from Jesus Christ. Now, Hebrews 9.15 says this. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since... A death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The receiving of this believer's inheritance has everything to do with us being in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. You see, the old covenant was the law covenant, and you had to keep the law or you couldn't be righteous, you couldn't be holy. That covenant gave way to the grace covenant. Why? Because man couldn't keep the law and he couldn't be holy. All the law showed us is that we're sinners and we need a savior. So God sends a savior and he puts us under grace. Now we're under this grace covenant and with it comes an eternal reward and inheritance in Christ Jesus. The old covenant was satisfied on the cross by Jesus when he nailed every sin that we would ever commit to the cross and broke its dominion over our lives. The new covenant is grace, and it comes with the free gift of eternal life, and it comes with an inheritance. Man, what a package deal we got when we came to Jesus. Amen? Anybody excited about that? We got to, we got to be cleansed from all our sins. We got to be forgiven. Amen? We got the free gift of eternal life. And he says, bonus package, you know, you get an inheritance with it. When you get up here with me, I got some blessings for you. Wow. I don't know about you, but just going to heaven is enough. I'm so glad that, you know, there's there's rewards and there's blessings and there's an inheritance for me. Our greatest inheritance is salvation, amen? Our greatest inheritance is eternal life. Now, being an heir is big if the one leaving you an inheritance has a big estate. Some people, you know, they receive an inheritance and it's a bill. Whether you know this or not. Some of you maybe met with the lawyer and instead of a blessing, you got a bill. When we die and go to be with the Lord, Jesus already paid the bill. And all there is for us is blessing. Since our inheritance is from God, the creator of all things, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, our inheritance is a really big deal. Romans 8, 16 through 18. God gives us several insights in how awesome our inheritance is. Listen to Romans 8, 16 through 18. Write that scripture down, study it, meditate on it. But listen, uh, as I just pull it apart here, and it, and it outlines some of the awesome things that are part of our inheritance. It says this in Romans 8, 16, 18. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. Holy Spirit, our spirit. There's a witness, there's a connection. That we are children of God. Someone say amen. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, listen, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, that we suffer with him, that we may also glorify together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory of what will be revealed in us. 
So what a powerful promise there, kind of outlining some of the inheritance. Uh, you know, our inheritance, the fact that we have one means we're children of God, and that's a huge blessing. Amen. If you, well, you know, I was always a good person. No, you weren't. You were lost like I was lost, like we were all lost. And you know what? If we weren't children of God, we were under his wrath, and we, whether we knew it or not, we were serving our flesh, we were serving the world, and we were serving the devil. To be translated from being lost to being found to being a child of God is something to get excited about. You and I need to meditate on that until the Holy Spirit reveals to us all that it means because, you know what, we don't get it. We say, oh, I'm a child of God. But when we start to understand the richness and the fullness of what that means, mm, it won't be so quiet in here. I mean, it's something to get excited about. Our inheritance also means that we are heirs of God. What is that? We're inheriting the things of God, and we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything Jesus attained, everything Jesus purchased, everything Jesus accomplished is in part ours through inheritance because he's made us children of God. So everything Jesus did, do you realize on the cross what Jesus began and finished the work there? He is redeeming everything that sin destroyed in the fall. Jesus is redeeming it and bringing it back into order and he's driving every bit of sin out and it will climax in, in, the, in the tribulation period when he finally deals with the enemy after the millennial reign. Jesus is gonna get the title deed of the earth, redeem everything back that sin stole away, restore man to perfect union with God, recreate the heavens and the earth. Come on, Wednesday night. Woo, did you eat too much turkey? Come on. This is, and we're part of it. This is, the, this is, you know, we're joint heirs with Jesus. Being an heir means our suffering is never in vain. Look, at the, look what it says here. For I reckon, you reckon out there? Anybody reckoning? I reckon. I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. What, what is that saying? Our part of our inheritance is this. That no matter what we suffer in life, it's not for nothing. It's not in vain. It's, it, it counts. It, it brings eternal rewards. And nothing this life throws at us can be compared to what we're going to experience in eternity. See, if we get this perspective of what Scripture is teaching here and we believe it, then no matter what comes at us throughout the day, it, it's not going to depress us. It's not going to make us shrink back. It's not going to make us mad at God. It's not going to make us say, why me? Because all of it means nothing in the scope of eternity because everything that we endure in this short life will be as nothing of no consequence when we step into eternity and enjoy the presence of God forever and ever and ever. You see, when there's no end in sight, it's hard to handle something. You know, if, 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 you're, if you're tormenting me, if you're annoying me, and I know you got to leave in 15 minutes, I can take it. You know, if we're going through hardship, if the dentist says, you know, this is going to hurt for like two seconds, we can take it. If the doctor says, you're going to feel pressure. Pressure, I'll give him pressure. When there's no end in sight, it's hard for us to endure things. When there's no hope, when there's no light at the end of the tunnel, it's hard for us to endure things. But this scripture and this idea of an inheritance is giving us something to focus on that no matter what we're going through, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to pass, it's not going to be forever, and in the end, we're going to be with the Lord in eternity. So this inheritance thing is an important thing for us to understand and to focus on. 
It means we have a hope and a future to focus on that dwarfs anything and everything we'll face in this life, and that's important for us to understand. So verse 11 encourages us that our inheritance is secure. You know, people in this world have money, and they have to fight to keep it. Anybody ever been there? You know, I had money, I I spent it, I I lost my job, you know, I had a house, I lost the house. I hear people's testimonies all the time. I had lands, and I had houses, and I had this, and I had that, and I lost it. Anybody? Yeah. In this life, we struggle to keep the things that we have. And let me tell you something. You can do everything right. You can work really hard, and the economy can collapse, and we can lose all our stuff. But this eternal inheritance we have in Jesus Christ is secure. And the stock market in heaven is not going to crash. And our 401K is not going to crash. No, it's secure and it's safe. You know, listen to what verse 11 says here. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Let's take a look at that. Our inheritance is secure to the point that even though we haven't fully possessed it, we have already, according to Scripture, attained it. Did you hear that? Do you guys have your full inheritance of what Jesus has given you for eternity yet? No, we're going to see we just have a down payment on it. But, but the Scripture is saying here that we have, even though we haven't possessed it, we have already attained it because of our election in Christ, because God chose us and he saved us and he wrote our name down in the Lamb's Book of Life and he called us his own child and he said, I have the ability to keep you and I'm not going to lose you. So what I've given you is safe and secure. Though you haven't possessed it yet, you've already attained it. Wow. See, we have attained it means that our inheritance is secure in Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't being dramatic. He wasn't just, you know, hitting a a good line. That was a good one-liner, wasn't it, Jesus? No, he meant it. It is finished. So you and I, being elected of God, we're going to talk about predestination again here a little bit. We visited that subject and covered it in detail, but it's mentioned here again that, you know, it's finished in his estimation. So we haven't possessed it yet, but we have already attained it. Now, we don't have to earn our eternal inheritance like a paycheck. Someone say, thank God. We don't have to put in years for it like a pension. We don't have to gravel for it like a beggar. It's a finished work of God's grace. Did you hear that? Verse 11b tells us exactly why our inheritance is a done deal, why it's so secure. It says, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's the second mention of predestination as, an, as a theological idea in chapter 1 of Ephesians. We discussed it last time. In a nutshell, predestination means that God chooses us, he elects us, and he foreknew that we would be recipients of his amazing grace via the gospel even before we were born. God knew that on such and such a date, you, would, you or and I would come to him and the Holy Spirit would draw us and we would receive him and we would become born again and we would become a child of God. And he foreknew that before the earth was created, before we were conceived in our mother's womb, he knew that that would happen and he predestined for us to have this eternal inheritance and reward even before our mommies and daddies met. Wow predestination. Now, does God make people 
you know, he, I, this person goes to heaven, this one goes to hell, this one can receive the gospel, this one, no. No, God doesn't make people to go to hell. There's still a choice. Remember, we talked about Calvinism and Arminianism. If you weren't here for that, get online and take a listen to that. But we are Arminian in our evangelical doctrine. We believe that you got to preach the gospel, and it's up to God who receives it. I don't know who's going to be saved. I don't know who's going to be lost. God knows. I don't know. My job, your job, is to preach the gospel to every living soul and let the seed fall and let the Holy Spirit do what he does. Amen. So, you know, before the foundations of the earth, God knew that we would be saved, that we would receive the gospel. He elected us and he has predestined us for this inheritance that comes from him. So what does it mean? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did did you hear that in the latter half of verse 11? He works all things to the counsel of his will. So it's as if his will is implemented. You know, God says, I'm going to do this. He implements his will, and it's done. When he says he works all things, that, that includes everything in our lives, it means God is going to have his way in our lives if we belong to him and we're his children. That's good news tonight. You know why? Because all of us feel like, man, if it's up to me, I'm going to mess this up. In fact, I've messed this up a lot already. I don't know if I've, you know, crossed the line or I'm disqualified or I can get this back. Or Listen, God is going to have his way in the life of his children. Now, it works much better if we cooperate with him. Amen? It kind of reminds me of going to the store when I was a little child with my mom. If I cooperated in the store, I remember in the city going to like Macy's or what was there, Bam Burgers. There's all these crazy stores, and I hated them all as a kid. It was just clothes and clothes and clothes, and I was always in the ladies' clothes section. And you know what? I, I, would, I would say, I got to be good in here, because if I'm not good, man, I'm going to get it when I get home. Anybody else? Just me, right? No, you too? Okay. A couple of us. A couple of us out there. So I remember hiding under the clothes racks and knocking over mannequins. My mom told me a story the other day. I tried to shake a mannequin's hand, and the hand came off in my hand. She said, my eyes got, I mean, I was bad. And then when I got home, see, and I realized that if I just cooperated with the will of my parents, life was a lot easier. And that's what you and I got to understand. God is going to have his way in our lives. You can go kicking and screaming. You can go pushing and shoving. Or you can cooperate and submit and let it go easy and be blessed all the way. But God is going to have his way in your life. If you're a son, if you're a daughter, if you belong to him, if you're in covenant with him, if you're an heir of eternal life, God is going to have his way. He's going to have his way. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. King David put it this way in Psalm 138.8. He said, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Look at that. The Lord will perfect what concerns me. David's saying, I I messed up a lot of things, but God's going to have his way in my life because he's God. And look what he says here. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Even when I'm messing up, your mercy and your grace get me back on track and produce the fruit in my life that you've ordained me to have. And he says, do not forsake the work of your hands. Even before the cross, David understood the concept of grace, that we belong to God and we need God to get us from point A to point B, but we are the workmanship of God, his sons and his daughters. And he says, God, I know I'm a hot mess, but don't forsake the work of your hands. Have your way in my life. Perfect what concerns me. 
We move on to verse 12 tonight. It says here, To the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, that's an interesting there, re, thing there. We realize this is the early church. Uh, the church is at its conception. Uh, these are the first believers here. And we, we see that he, he's you know, talking about the, the first to believe in the gospel. And that's an interesting thing. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. Those who believed in the gospel initially, think about this. Jesus died. He, he rose again. The disciples go to the upper room, and they're waiting on the Lord, and the Holy Spirit falls. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit indwells them. They begin to speak in other tongues, and the power of God rests on them. And then what do they do? Peter, who denied Jesus three times, goes out, and he starts preaching the gospel. And the first sermon that Peter preaches, you know, you could read it. It's in Acts. It's not even that good. But I want to tell you something. 3,000 people got saved. If you preach that same sermon in a lot of our churches today, people are like, what else you got? You know, we want movie screens and smoke machines and skinny jeans. The Laodicean church, entertain us. Peter preaches this simplistic message talking about history and the gospel and Jesus and the resurrection, and 3,000 people get saved. What were those first people to hear the gospel and receive the gospel? They were precious to God. And understand something, everyone, obviously everyone who comes to Christ is precious and special. Amen? But those who first believed the gospel when it was first preached were extra special to God because they were a kind of first fruits offering to the Lord, and that was precious to him. Write that down tonight if you're taking notes. The first fruits offering. The concept of first fruits is rooted in biblical times in the Old Testament when people lived in agrarian society. Harvest time was a very significant time because it was the time where all the hard work that farmers put in and poured into their crops paid off for the year, and they were literally reaping what they sowed. Now, God commanded his people to bring a first fruits offering to him in Leviticus 23.10. Listen to Leviticus 23.10. When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So in Leviticus, God tells the people, when your crops come in, you give me an offering of the first of what you harvest. It's a first fruits offering. The people who heard the gospel preached for the first time and believed were a first fruits offering unto the Lord. And it pleased him, amen. And, and look what he's saying here. In verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, think about that. You say, well, I don't, you know, thousands of people were saved. The church was off and running, but we hear the gospel and we believe and it's precious to God. There's a first fruits offering that's offered to him. Uh, and God commanded his people to bring the first fruits. Peter and the disciples and, and Paul, all of them brought in this harvest to the Lord that was pleasing to the Lord. Understand the significance of the first fruits. And now, once again, listen to verse 12. That we who, are, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Amen. Oh, when a sinner comes to God and is made a saint because he hears the gospel and believes it's precious to God. Verse 13. It says, in him 
you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there was a first fruit offering, but you know everyone who comes to him and believes the gospel is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 13 gives us our final in him. And it starts off, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So part of being in him, the redemption and the benefits we receive, part of being in him is being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, that that might not sound very impressive, but as we dig into it, you're going to see what a blessing that is. The fifth benefit of redemption we experience by being in Christ, by being in him, is being sealed with the Holy Ghost. This verse offers us some insight into how the gospel takes effect on us. Look, it says, first we trust in Jesus. We come to him, we trust. Then we believe in him, then we're sealed. Look at the verse there. You're going to see that pattern in the verse. We, we, we trust in him, we believe in him, and then we're sealed. So let's take a look at how that works. Here's how the gospel affects the hearts of men. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. So we have to come to God and we have to trust him, amen? That's how it starts. Many people say, well, I don't trust organized religion or I don't trust them preachers, they just want your money or I don't trust any church. And you've all heard it before, amen? When you're witnessing to people, you hear stuff like that? They say, oh, I, don't, I don't like organized religion. I always say, well, come to our church. We're very disorganized. You, you really like it. Yes. You know, trying to be humorous, yes. trying to kind of just, you know, shuck off that excuse. But, you know, the truth is we do have to trust in Jesus before we can be saved. Now, there's three things that we should know about the gospel. We've got to trust in Jesus, and the way we trust in Jesus is to come and, you know, hear the gospel. Three things about the gospel I want you to know. Number one, the gospel is powerful. Number two, the gospel is provocative. And number three, the gospel is polarizing. I'm going to cover those in just a minute here. But number one, the gospel is powerful. You know, look what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel has the power to open blind eyes. The gospel has the power to demolish excuses. The gospel has the power to draw people out of the darkness into the light. The gospel is powerful. The gospel turns sinners into saints. And I want you to understand something. Yeah, the world's heard it before. Yeah, there's a church on every corner. Yeah, we might might not be the best at articulating it, but you know what? Have confidence in the gospel. If you don't have confidence in yourself, if you don't have confidence in your articulation, if you don't have confidence in your, you know, your persuasive uh, ability to just preach the simple gospel, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus broke the power of sin. If you confess your sin and believe in him, you can have the free gift of eternal life. It's powerful. You know, sometimes we think we need to dress it up or we need to glitz it up or we need to sugarcoat it, and that's a mistake. People in churches who do that pollute the gospel and and kind of water it down, and then it's not the gospel anymore. In its simplicity, it's powerful. So believe in it and communicate it the best you can. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. 
The gospel is powerful. It turns sinners into saints. The gospel is provocative. Let me tell you something about the gospel. If it's preached in its simplicity and it's not sugar-coated, it will bring us face-to-face with our sin. The gospel's provocative. People don't like to be told that they're sinners. Remember the first time you figured out you were a sinner and you needed a savior? I remember as a young man at 14 years old, I thought I was a pretty good guy. I thought it was pretty nice. In fact, compared to my friends, if God graded on a curve, I would certainly make it into at least purgatory because I was Catholic then. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit showed me, hey, son, you're lost and you're a sinner. And then he began to show me all of my sins and it didn't take long to convince me. And then on the heels of that, but I'm a savior, and if you want me, and and it didn't take long. The minute I figured out I was a sinner, I wanted a savior. The gospel is provocative. Don't water it down. Don't, Don't sugarcoat it. Don't take the edge off it. Why? Because the edge is what brings sinners to repentance. Let it be provocative. Let people, now do it with love and do it with kindness, and don't point any fingers, amen, because, you know, we're sinners saved by grace as well. Let's not forget that but it's provocative. Let it be provocative. Number three, the gospel is polarizing. It will force you to make a decision. When the gospel is preached correctly, you have to decide, am I going to receive Jesus or do I say I don't want Jesus right now? I'll find another way or I'll wait till I'm older or all the other excuses you and I have always heard. The gospel uh, is powerful, it's provocative, but it's also polarizing. You got, it, when it's preached correctly in its simplicity under the power of the Holy Spirit, it will force people to make a decision. Are you in or are you out? You know, you can't be mostly saved or half saved. It's kind of like being a little pregnant. You're either pregnant or you aren't. You're either saved or you're lost, amen? The gospel's powerful, it's provocative, and it's polarizing. And it's hearing the gospel that allows us to trust in Jesus. Number two, we have to not only trust in him, but believe in him. Now, why does belief follow trust? Because We can't really believe in someone or something that we don't find trustworthy. No matter how persuasive, no matter how charismatic, if we hear someone selling us a bill of goods, if we look at them and we, you know, we we don't see them as trustworthy, then we can't believe them. And you have to trust first so that you can believe. I'll give you some examples. The used car salesman who says every car he shows you was driven by a 90-year-old lady once a week to church on Sunday, right? Oh, this thing is immaculate. It was never abused. I got all the records. I'm not stepping on the car salesman out there. I'm just telling you, you know, there's the ones out there. An old lady drove to church on Sunday. That's it. It's just beautiful. It's perfect. Does it have a, a warranty? Five seconds off the lot, we have a warranty. How about the late night infomercial personality? All your hair will grow back thicker and fuller 30 days or your money back. Man, some of us watching that stuff, yeah, I'm gonna give it a try. And we know they're not trustworthy and we know it's a scam. Come on, let's just be honest. How, much, how many of us have bought stuff that we knew, you know, it, but you know, we invested 40 minutes watching it, so hey, what the heck? And I'll just send it back if it, and then you forget and they charge you anyway. Come on. 
we knew it wasn't trustworthy. We, we didn't really trust it. We didn't really believe the spiel. It sounded good. It, it, was, it was forceful. It was long. It wore us out. It wore us down. And we paid $19.95 and got rushed free shipping. And we, but wait, there's more. And then, you know, there how about the telemarketer who calls and says, you know, if you sign up with this program, your phone bill will drop by 85% and it'll never go up again. I remember, we used to switch all the time, switch to this guy, switch to this guy, switch to that. I didn't know if the phone was coming or going. Every time I turned around, my wife would open up a bill and I hear shrieks in the kitchen. Because ah! they lie. And there's fine print. There's fine print you can't read with the Hubble telescope. It's... You can't, and they always lie, and we know it, and they talk us into it sometimes anyway. The used car salesman, the late-night infomercial, the, the telemarketer, we know that they're not trustworthy. We really don't believe them. Sometimes we get bamboozled, but most of the time we're like, I'm not falling for that. We've got to trust Jesus before we can believe in him. We've got to know that he's trustworthy, that he is who he says he is. And so there's this trust factor that takes place. Then we believe in him and we receive the gospel. And then number three, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And see how the pattern works here in verse 13. This trust leads to belief. It all happens during the, the hearing of the gospel. And then after we trust and believe, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur's commentary uh, on the New Testament, talks about uh, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I want to read you an excerpt from that because he says it better than I can. The sealing of which Paul speaks of here in Ephesians 1.13 refers to an official mark or identification that was placed on the letter, contract, or an important document. The seal was made from hot wax, which was placed on the document and then impressed with a signet ring. The document was thereby officially identified with, the, uh, with and under the authority of the person to whom the signet belongs. So you got a letter, you got a document, you fold it up, you pour wax on the fold, and they stick the ring in there and seal it, and their mark is on there, and now it's an official, sealed, legal document. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in his life. Life in Jesus Christ is different now because the Spirit of God is in us. He is there to empower us, equip us for ministry, and function through the gifts he has given us. The Holy Spirit is our helper and advocate. He protects and encourages us. He also guarantees our inheritance in Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit of God is our securing force and our guarantee. You and I are are sealed by the Holy Spirit. God has chosen us. He's marked us. He's put the wax upon our heart, put his seal on our heart, and filled us with the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. The enemy knows who the children of God are. The enemy knows who he's not allowed to touch, who he can't mess with, who God stands behind. He knows who the lost are. He knows who are his puppets and who are under his dominion and control. You and I need to know that we know that we know that we're saved that we've trusted, that we've believed, and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Who is the guarantee? The Holy Spirit. Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So 
He's the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. You say, well, Pastor Rick, you're talking about this inheritance. How do I know if I have an inheritance? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Are you born again? Do you belong to God? Do you have an assurance of salvation? I'm asking. Well, then you're sealed by the Holy Spirit because you would never feel or claim any of those things unless you were. It's important for us to understand it. He is a guarantee of our inheritance. It's like, you know, uh, it's like when sometimes if you get into a situation where maybe you forgot your wallet or your credit cards or something and you got a bill to pay and maybe you take off your watch and it's an expensive one. And you say, I'm going to leave this here until I come back with, and I'll pay for it then. And the person will look at that and go, wow, you know, you, you had two hot dogs and a soda. I'll take the watch. But, you know, it's, it's kind of that promise that I'm going to leave something valuable with you to, you know, to basically to suggest I'm going to come back. Or, or it's, you know, I'm definitely going to come back and pay. And that's kind of what God did. God said, I'm not taking you now. You've got stuff to do here. But I, I'm going to put something in you that's so valuable. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. And it's a promise. And it's a guarantee of inheritance that I'm going to come back to get you. Praise God. Holy Spirit in our lives is a guarantee of the inheritance that Ephesians is talking about in Christ. We are marked by God. We are children of God. The Holy Spirit is a preview. He's a trailer. He's a teaser of what awaits us in eternity. Think about that. Why did he put Christ in us? Why did he put the Holy Spirit in us? So we would get excited about what the future holds for us. You know when you go to the movies and you, you watch a trailer, you watch a preview? Well, I mean, if it's good, it gets you excited, right? How many times you're sitting there, you're shoveling popcorn in your face, there's butter everywhere, and you're watching this thing and thinking, oh, we're going to see that. Yeah, that looks good. That's what the promise of the Holy Ghost in us. It's just, a, you, know, you, you know, he's showing us so there's so much more to come, and you can count on it, and my presence with you, and, and my spirit working in you. All of these things are a promise that you are mine and that there's an inheritance waiting for you, and I'm coming back to get you. Don't miss the implication of the second half of the verse. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Did you hear that? What's the purchased possession? You and I are the purchased possession. Who purchased us? Jesus purchased us with his own blood on the cross, amen? And what is this idea of redemption? Well, he's coming back to redeem what he purchased by the blood of the lamb. He's coming back to get us, and he's promised that we have an inheritance, and he sealed it with the Holy Spirit, a promise to let us know that we're his, and he says, I'm gonna redeem you. Uh, and, And understand this idea of redemption. We are redeemed positionally in Christ and through the working of the Holy Spirit, we are being redeemed personally as, as God sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. So it guarantees that he will come for us and usher us into eternity because he's already bought and paid for us by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? You and I, who are in him, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're heirs of eternal life. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit in us, and God is going to come and redeem what he bought and paid for, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you tonight for the word. I thank you tonight for 
the depth and the detail of what you have hidden in your word for those who seek you uh, beyond the casual. Father, I pray that each one tonight will take home a deposit from you. Father, tuck some eternity in our hearts tonight from what we heard from your word. Help us to remember it's all about being in him, being in Christ. It's all about being selected and predestined and and chosen by God. It's all about being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and being sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what it means to be your children and let it excite us so that we'll understand that no matter what tomorrow throws at us, it fades and pales in comparison to the glory that awaits us for eternity in Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.